if you were thrown into the Sahara Desert and needed survival for however long of time, what's one of the first things you would do? Right? Now, some of you might have a, a, a list come to mind of a couple different things, but I think all of us can probably be in agreement that one of the first things you do is find a water source, right? That is, of all the things, the one thing that you can deal with for the least amount of time not having, so that would be one of the first things that we would hopefully try to find. We live in a world that for our souls, is a spiritual desert. We have a world around us that cannot quench the thirst of our souls. But we also live in a world that we have people making offers of things that can quench our our souls on every corner, it seems like. So in a sense, we live in a desert, but about every ten feet you have somebody offering you a soda through the desert. Which, by the way, never fully quenches your thirst. In fact, it makes you more thirsty, doesn't it? Jesus today makes a, an astounding offer for souls that are thirsty. We're going to continue the conversation that we started last week. Jesus was explaining his relationship with the Father again to the Jewish people. He rejected his brother's offer of glory for him to go gain this massive following at the feast, but instead he said, I'm seeking God's glory, I'm desiring God's will to be done, the Father's will to be done. And all of this happening in the midst of the feast of tabernacles or booths or whatever you want to call it, and we're still there this morning. In fact, we'll be there for quite a while. It goes through chapter 7, and Jesus also continuing in chapter 8 is speaking at this feast. So we're going to see a lot of this feast come into play, and we'll see what Jesus says this week and in the coming weeks, how that plays into what was going on at the feast, but that's where we're at this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 7, starting in verse 25. It says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me? And you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, 
let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So what we see at the beginning here of this passage is we have the crowd that can't make sense of Jesus apart from physical location. Right? I call this, they're bound by geography. Right? They're limited in their understanding of, of where Jesus has come from. And we see today where Jesus is going, they're bound only by physical locations, by geography. They can't make sense of it otherwise. Right? It seems that, at least from the passage this morning, that Jesus has given them a sufficient answer of what we talked about last week. If you remember, right, the whole, the whole dilemma was Jesus was explaining to them how it was right for him to heal a man on the Sabbath because they also circumcise on the Sabbath in order that the law might be fulfilled and completed. So why would they get angry for him making a whole body complete on the Sabbath? And we don't see any mention of that from them here. It seems like he's given them a sufficient answer, at least for now. But now we're left with a confused crowd, right? The, the crowd is now looking and saying, do the authorities believe this man now? Verse 25 and 26. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So it seems like maybe the authorities, they're they're not speaking back to Jesus, so are they believing him? What's going on with the authorities? But then we quickly get an answer that surely this must not be the case. They must not actually believe he's the Christ, because they know where Jesus' hometown is. Verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. There was a tradition among the Jewish people that nobody would know the Messiah's geography until he finally came to power, in a sense. Before that, nobody would know where he came from. Now, this was a tradition. This wasn't necessarily from the Old Testament, because what we'll see next week is there's also a group of Jewish people saying, well, the Old Testament says the Messiah is going to come from the line of David in Bethlehem. But this man's from Galilee. He's not from Bethlehem. Now, we know the truth, right? Because we have Luke telling us where Jesus was actually born at, but we'll get into that next week. Either way, their minds are limited by geography. They're saying, this man is from Nazareth, this man is from Galilee. Whether Jesus is talking about earthly or heavenly origins, they don't know either one. They don't get either one of them because they're so limited in their knowledge. So Jesus responds to their contention here. Verse 28, he agrees with them on some level. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. So in one sense, he's saying on a general level, you're right. You do know generally where I've come from. You do know generally where I've lived, that I do come from Galilee. You're right in that sense. But we find out that they're wrong on such a much deeper level than just the geography element. Jesus makes it clear yet again, as if he hasn't done it enough already talking to them, but I have not come Of my own accord. So Jesus says, You might know generally where I've come from, but I haven't come on my own. I've been sent by someone. 
And then he assures them here that, that the one who sent him is, is, he says, true. He's saying, I'm not lying to you. There really is one who sent me. And clearly from what we've heard so far, the Jews know who Jesus is talking about. He's claiming the Father has sent him. And he's saying, it's true. I'm not lying to you. He's, it, not only is the Father real, but he really sent me. And notice where all this is happening at. This is a bit ironic, if you think about it. It was planned, I'm sure, by Jesus and the Father. Where's he saying all this at? Right in front of the temple. In the midst of their massive feast, Jesus is saying, the one you worship there is the one who sent me now. I'm standing in front of you, sharing all of this with you, because the one you claim to worship sent me. This is a claim made by many other religions. If you think about it, someone's been sent by God himself. Right? Think of Islam, that Muhammad was given a message from Allah. Or you think of the Mormon religion, and Joseph Smith was given a vision from God. There's just one difference. Jesus is telling the truth. Jesus is not just a man. He actually is one with the Father as the Son, he claims over and over. He's not just a man who received a vision, but he is God. He is one with the Father as the Son. And Jesus has the audacity to say in front of the temple, the God you worship here is the one who sent me now. But then Jesus drops the hammer. Look at the last part of the verse. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. He's saying the God you worship in this temple, you don't actually know who he is. You don't actually know the Father. He's saying their worship is towards a Father whom they don't even have a relationship with. Now we can imagine the faces starting to get red and burning with anger because these are the Jewish people after all who are having a feast because God commanded them to have this feast in the Old Testament and and now they have Jesus telling them they don't actually know the God that told them to have the feast. But Jesus is making the point, you might know my geography, but you don't know the Father because you don't know the Son. John puts this back and forth all throughout, especially his epistle of 1 John. He talks about, if you don't know the Son, you don't know the Father. They're so linked together, you can't know one without the other. And so he tells them, you don't know him. But then he makes another claim, verse 29. I do know him. I know him. Well, how is it that all these people don't know the Father, but Jesus does know the Father? Well, for I come from him and he sent me. So Jesus has a relationship with the Father all in eternity past and all in eternity future, and he has been sent by the Father. So Jesus is the one who knows the Father, not the people that he's talking to. And we see they have a mixed reaction on this. Verse 30, 
So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So there's mixed reviews, at least at this point. Some seek to arrest him out of anger, right? That Jesus is saying that they don't really know the Father. But yet, because his hour has not yet come, he he doesn't actually get arrested. But then there's another group that says, at least says they believe. Now, whether that's genuine or not, we don't know. It also said that earlier in the Gospel of John, but it was their belief in the signs, and it wasn't true belief. It said Jesus didn't believe their belief. And here we see them mentioning signs again. Well, when the Messiah appears, will he do more signs than what this Jesus is doing? So we don't know whether their belief is actually genuine or not. Next week's passage shows that there's still confusion about who Jesus really is. But then we see a switch from the crowd to the Pharisees. They hear the claim that Jesus has made, that they don't know the Father, but Jesus does know the Father, and he's been sent by the Father. And they hear about these people who are potentially believing in Jesus and the claims that he's making. So verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. We must remove this man. He's making crazy claims that people are actually potentially starting to believe We have to eliminate him from the situation. But Jesus speaks again in the midst of this. Now he talks about not just their limitations and understanding where he comes from, but where he's going to. Verse 33. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. He says, I'm going to be with you a little while longer, which is true. Jesus is crucified six months later. So he's telling the truth here. I'm only going to be with you for a little while still, but then I'm going to the one who sent me. So he came from the one who sent him. He's going to the one who sent him. And then he expands even further. Verse 34, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. He says they will seek and search for him, but they will be unable to find him. Because where he is going, which is with the Father, the one who sent him, they can't go. But notice, the Jews and their response seem to totally ignore what Jesus just said about going to the one who sent him. They focus only on the geography of the situation. Verse 35. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach The Greeks, right? So there was this moment in history where the Jews had been dispersed into other regions, other parts that were not Israel, really. And so they had been dispersed by the Greeks. And so they say, well, is Jesus going to go outside of the Jewish area into the Greek area and teach people there? Which really doesn't necessarily make sense with everything that Jesus has said, right? How is that him going back to the one who sent him? And how is it that they wouldn't be allowed, they could not, it's impossible for them to come to him, right? It might be difficult to find him, but Jesus is saying, you can't come to me, right? That doesn't seem to really make sense if he's just going to another region. But like I said, notice the complete disregard to what he had already said. He said, 
I am going to him who sent me. They totally miss this. They're not recognizing what Jesus means by saying, I'm going to the one who sent me. It's kind of like we're talking this week as a family. So we have a membership to the zoo, and the zoo sent an email saying that their their policies have changed now, or they are going to change in June because of all the CDC guidelines and stuff. So now it's, you don't have to wear a mask when you're outside at the zoo, right? So they're changing these guidelines. And all I did was I was sharing with Lydia. I was like, oh, the zoo changed their guidelines. If you're a member, you don't have to make reservations anymore. And if you're outdoors, you don't have to wear a mask. All my kids heard was zoo. Like, are we going today? What time are we leaving? Right? That's all they heard. They heard the one word, zoo, and they thought, we're going. They totally missed it. Jesus says, I'm going to the one who sent me. And they're like, you going to the Greeks? They know what Jesus says. They know who Jesus is referring to when he says, the one who sent me. They've already gotten angry at him for saying it. But they've missed it. They don't even get what Jesus just said. They're limited by their unbelief. They're bound to their geography. And that their unbelief is confirmed in the final verse here of what they say. Verse 36. What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come? Plain and simple. They just don't get it. And it proves actually what Jesus is saying to already be true. Jesus just told them, you don't know the Father, by them saying, we're ignoring what you just said about going to the Father, and we're going to focus on the dispersion and the Greeks, shows that they really don't know the Father. And then carrying on from last week, they don't desire the Father's will. They don't seek the Father's glory. There's no desire for the Father. So we're left with the question of what hope is there for these people? Or more so, they're left with the question of, well, what do we do with this Jesus standing in front of us right now? These are shocking statements. So what do we do with them? And that's where we see the answer in our final verses this morning. Rivers for thirsty souls. Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast, and he calls for people to have faith. We end with this these three verses today, but like I said, the conversation is going to continue into next week in chapter 7 and then all the way into chapter 8 as well. I just want to call some attention to the context yet again. We're at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of of Booths, they call it, and what it is is where the Jewish people would actually live in tents for the feast as, as a way of remembering what happened when they were traveling in the wilderness when Moses was leading Israel towards the promised land, and they had to live in their tents and pick up and pack up, and so they would live in tents for this whole feast, but also in the midst of this feast, there was a ceremony where they would make an offering of a cup of water to God, right, as a reference back to God providing water in the wilderness, and there was also a ceremony of lighting candles, and I just want to call attention to those just real quick, just to show There's significance in what Jesus says here as he starts talking about being thirsty and rivers of living water. And then going into chapter 8, he calls himself the light of the world. Jesus is using this feast to, and their ceremony in the feast to describe himself to them. So there's some significance to his language. 
But I want to focus on this call to faith that we see this morning. This is our last thing we'll camp out on for the rest of our time. Let me just read it again, verse 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now some of this language might sound similar to chapter 6, where Jesus talked about hunger and thirst, and here he talks about thirst again. I want us to break it down here. We're going to break it down into some words and phrases so we understand the full thing of what Jesus is trying to say here. So verse 37, he says, if anyone thirsts, we're going to take each of those three words, if. Jesus is telling them they need to recognize their thirst. I don't think what Jesus is saying here by saying if anyone thirsts, he's not saying some people thirst and others don't. Because if you remember in chapter 6, he said whoever comes to me, their thirst will be quenched, right? They will never be thirsty again. Right? There's this understanding, this underlying foundation in that passage where Jesus is saying, everybody's thirsty. Everybody's thirsty. It's just those who recognize their thirst and their need to have it quenched that come to Jesus that find that their thirst will end forever. Right? So it's not saying some thirst and some don't. I think what Jesus is saying here is, if anyone recognizes their thirst... So here, the baseline is all people in the world are thirsty, but not all people truly understand their thirst. So the if means there must be a recognition of that thirst in order to get that thirst quenched. So that's the word if. The next word, if anyone. Jesus says that this quenching of the thirst is shockingly available to anyone Imagine the audience that Jesus is talking to at the feast. You have a crowd that's divided about him. Some believe in his signs and some want to kill him or arrest him. You have the Pharisees and the chief priests who it says over and over they desire to kill him. You have now the officers that the priests and the Pharisees have sent who are there to arrest him. All of them standing there hearing Jesus and he says, if anyone thirsts. He's making this available to any single person that's listening, even the Pharisees, even the officers who are there to arrest him. If they recognize their thirst, they can come to Jesus and drink and have rivers of living water. The grace of Christ is astounding at this moment. May it be a reminder to us First, that we're not so unlike that crowd. We're not so unlike those Pharisees. So the grace he's offering to them is the same grace he offers to us, but also may it be a reminder to us that the grace of Christ can reach even into the darkest hearts. That there are people who live around us in this community that it might be on our human level, we might think they're too far gone. 
But Jesus speaks to the very people who want to kill him and says, if anyone thirsts, come and drink. And then we get to the third word, thirsts. Jesus is talking here about unquenched souls. This is the first word that really begins the direction of the rest of the passage as we later hear about rivers and water flowing. Thirst kind of introduces this water element here. But we should realize by this point even, even by just chapter 7, Jesus isn't talking about a physical thirst. Remember, he already talked about living water to the woman at the well. Right? Remember with feeding the 5,000 and that crowd came to him again the next day and he said, you're seeking food that perishes, but there's a food that endures. And he's not talking about a physical food. We should understand by this point of hearing all of these things that Jesus is not talking about a physical thirst. Even further, right? He says, whoever believes in me will never thirst again. Come drink my blood because my blood is true drink. Right? We know Jesus isn't talking that you literally have to kill him and drink his blood. So how do we know what Jesus means? I think context helps us here. We see two other elements introduced here. We see in verse 38, he mentions our heart. And in verse 39, he mentions the spirit. Right? Neither of these things, when you say your heart, unless you're talking about the medical part of your heart, when you say whatever your heart is feeling, you're not talking about a tangible thing. You're not talking about something that you see. And same thing when we talk about our spirit or the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about some sort of external thing. We're talking about something we can't see, something we can't put our hands around and touch. These often speak of unseen realities or internal aspects of our lives. I think this is why Jesus is preaching to people and he's not preaching to animals and trees. Because Jesus believes human beings have something innately spiritual to who we are. We have souls, we have spirits, right? Animals don't, trees don't. Jesus isn't preaching this message to just anything randomly in creation, specifically to people. Because we have souls that respond to the spiritual world. Think of, by the way, you may have caught it, every song we've sang so far this morning mentions our souls. But let's just hit the one that we sang last together, How Great Thou Art. What does your soul do? Sings. We sing that and we understand what that song means, don't we? We're not saying that just because words are coming out of my mouth and my soul is singing. You're saying that in the depths of who you are, your, your soul is exclaiming these things. Whether you're singing them or not, your soul could sing the words of that song without your mouth ever saying the words. And so we have souls. So in speaking about our souls, Jesus says we must recognize that our souls are thirsty. How is it that our souls are thirsty? Well, all human beings seek to be satisfied and fulfilled in life. We may often mislabel it. We may not call call it souls that are thirsty. We may say it's a desire to be loved or a feeling of security or the emotion of joy. But from Jesus' perspective, he's saying it's all the same thing. You're seeking satisfaction somewhere. 
All souls are thirsty, and they're searching to be quenched in a number of ways. You may search for security by having money. You may search for accomplishment feelings through sports. Or you may search to feel comforted by relationships. Yet Jesus says, recognize your thirst. And in recognizing your thirst, realize that there's only one way to have it quenched. There's only one place that will truly quench your thirsty soul. And that's where he continues to go. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus quenches the thirst. As you realize your soul's thirst and your lack of satisfaction by the world, there's only one who truly quenches your thirst. Jesus says, come to me. And he's not talking physically. The people are already standing in front of him. He's saying your soul has to abandon all else, all other pursuits of satisfaction, and come to me. And then drink. What does he mean? What does Jesus mean? That your thirsty soul must drink of him. Well, it seems to be equated with, in verse 38, he says, whoever believes. Come and drink is the same as believe. But I think Jesus is reminding us of something here. Often in our minds, and even the Jewish people's minds, when we hear believe, what do we think? We think of external mental assent, agreement with the external facts. Right When Jesus says, believe in him, he's not saying, you have to believe that the cross and the resurrection are historically true, and that's belief. They are true, and that is part of belief, but that is not true belief to just say, yes, it happened. If your soul takes no part in that process of what happened, or realizing what happened, or coming to Jesus to be quenched, just saying those are historically true things doesn't mean you believe. Does that make sense? Just because it's historically true doesn't mean your soul has trusted in it. Those are two different things. So when Jesus says, come and drink, he's talking about more than just a mental agreement to the facts. In fact, this whole passage, and I would say the whole life and ministry of Jesus, is correcting the Jewish people and us over and over of, you have to go beyond what your just external minds think about the facts. Just think about the Sermon on the Mount for a minute. What does Jesus say? He says, you're worried about murder? I'm worried about you being angry with your brother. You're worried about adultery? I'm worried about you being lustful towards people. You've got to go beyond the external And realize that there's an internal reality that is part of our belief. The point with the language Jesus is using here is that true belief is our souls trusting, resting, experiencing everlasting satisfaction and joy in God through Jesus. All of those longings of our souls... The longing for approval, the longing for security, the longing for love, the longing for comfort are quenched fully by Jesus. Notice what he says next, verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There's an everlasting joy that comes when you come and drink Jesus. For those who realize their thirst and come and drink of Jesus, this is what they find in Christ. 
And Jesus tells us that this is really talking about the Spirit. Well, John tells us that. The Spirit who enters into believers and mediates Jesus to us. Right? Look at what Jesus says about the Spirit. John chapter 14, verses 17 through 20. Just listen. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. By the Spirit who is given after Jesus is glorified, the Spirit is in us, and by the Spirit being in us, Christ is in us. And going back to verse 38, as Christ is in us, out of our hearts flow rivers of living water. The imagery is vivid here, is it not? If you are thirsty, you drink Jesus and your thirst is quenched, but not just for that moment, but you have rivers forever flowing from your heart as Christ is in you. Who would ever be thirsty again when you have rivers that are flowing? And these rivers are flowing inside of you from your soul as Christ is in you by his spirit. Every way in which your soul was once thirsty now finds itself quenched and satisfied by the rivers of Christ that flow in your heart. You once longed for approval. Now you find you've been adopted By God in Christ. You once sought security, but Jesus says, I'll never cast you out. You once sought comfort, but Jesus says, Take heart, I have overcome the world. You once sought love, but Jesus, but God says, I gave you my own son. You once sought accomplishment, but Paul says, I consider all things as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. You once sought pleasure, but you notice Psalm 16 at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The joy of your soul is satisfied in Jesus and it will last forever because you have rivers of Christ flowing in your heart and those rivers never run dry. And come to find out, this was always God's plan. Look at what verse 38 says. As the scripture has said, this was the plan of all history. Now, there's debate to what Jesus is referring to, what specific passage of the Old Testament Jesus is referring to. But if you just glance through the themes of the Old Testament, you can see that a need or a plan for people's souls to be quenched was always part of the plan. In Deuteronomy, God tells his people, your hearts need to be circumcised. They need to be changed, right? Something internal. In Joel... It's promised that God is going to send His Spirit upon His people. In Jeremiah, it says that God's law will be written on our hearts. In Ezekiel, he says, I'm going to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will take out your old spirit and give you a new spirit. I think maybe we can glance at, real quick at one passage from Isaiah and hear some elements of what Jesus is saying here. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 11. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. 
and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. The Lord satisfies our desires, the desires of our souls. And you become then a spring of water, rivers of flowing, living water that never fail. It reminds us that this quenching for our thirsty souls was always part of God's plan in all of history. So when Jesus describes this thirst being quenched by himself, and then rivers coming into our hearts. He is fulfilling exactly what God said would happen. But it's not just for the past. It's not just about what God promised in the past, and it's not just about Jesus' time period. Look at the last part here, verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit. John adds this note here that after he now, remember John is writing from the perspective after Jesus has already ascended into heaven. John is writing saying, after seeing Jesus crucified, resurrected, and ascend into heaven, the Spirit has come. And he looks back at this and he sees this as a peculiar moment because he's saying everything Jesus is saying is true. We should believe everything Jesus is saying, but it wasn't all fulfilled yet because we had to wait for the Spirit to come after Jesus was glorified. But now he's looking back and saying, I've seen all of this to be true. John is saying, I've had the Spirit come now and now I experience exactly what Jesus said would happen. My soul is quenched. I do have rivers flowing from my heart and everlasting joy. So he makes this note. He adds this note of saying it's not just an Old Testament promise. It's not just as Jesus is speaking the words. It's not just as the apostles because he says the Spirit. So John is saying to the people reading this, the people he wrote it to thousands of years ago, and you and me this morning, he says the Spirit gives this. He's talking about the Spirit. Who receives the Spirit? All who believe. So John is telling you this morning, your thirsty soul can be quenched. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie. It's kind of in, I think it's in the 90s or whatever, but the movie The Little Rascals. Anybody seen it? The colored version, not the black and white version, okay? I watched the black and white version, but I'm talking about the updated movie they made. But anyway, the kid who plays Alfalfa, I watched an interview with him this week. He's pushing 40 years old now. He's had a rough life. But what happened is he ended up, in recent years, converting to Christianity through some... Catholic people that he's met, and I don't know all the ins and outs of all of his doctrine and things like that. I know there's differences, certainly, between Roman Catholic and what we believe, but I'm, nevertheless, he's showing elements, at least, of, of a soul that's been quenched. So he went through his whole childhood being abused by people on these movie sets, 
And it ended up with him holding anger towards his mom for allowing that to happen to him. It ended up with him being a a womanizer chasing after all sorts of women. It ended up with him being an alcoholic. It ended up with him living for all the fame of Hollywood. And he had all these riches, right? I think he said at one point in the interview that just within his first couple movies, he had enough money for like six years of his life already. But now, after having this conversion experience, everything changes. What you find out is he's gone from alcoholism to sobriety. He has gone from anger to forgiveness of his mom and developing a relationship with her again. He's gone from fame to now taking a vow of poverty to live off his own land. He's gone from womanizing to now being devoted to his wife and his three daughters. He's gone from riches to, like I said, a vow of poverty where they don't even seek to have a savings account. Because uh, Now, again, I'm not saying that that's what all of us have to do. I'm just using this as an example of the radical transformation that happens when your soul finds satisfaction in Jesus. When your thirsty soul is finally quenched, you don't need these things anymore. So this offer for thirsty souls to be quenched and have rivers of living water by the Spirit, that is the offer for all of you this morning. Look in your own heart. Have you been seeking satisfaction? Have you been seeking pleasure? Have you been seeking joy apart from Jesus? Right? Do you think, well... I just need the love of my family. If they would just treat me this way, or I just need the security of having this size of house or this much in my bank account, if I just get this much saved, if I just get this big of a house, or are you seeking the approval of your work or your friends, right? That, that if I could just have, if my, I have joy if my friends agree with me in the way I'm living my life, or if I just could just get enough recognition from my boss at my job, or maybe it's the pleasure of entertainment that I just have to stay in tune with watching this show every week, or if I can just do one more vacation, or if, 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 if. If you keep trying to have your soul quenched by those things, you will always be thirsty. Always. God made a promise in the Old Testament. He sent Jesus to teach that promise and to secure that promise for us by going to the cross so that you and I can have everlasting joy. But it's only in coming to Him by our soul drinking Christ that we find we have rivers of living water flowing by the Spirit in us. And let me just add one more note here. This is the same message you have for the rest of the world, too. That anyone who realizes their thirst can have their soul quenched by Christ. And they can have pleasure, satisfaction, forever. As they have rivers of living water flowing in their heart by the Spirit. So I want to end with some final questions for you. Brothers and sisters, are you thirsty? Does your soul need quenched? Is your heart feeling like it's running dry? Do you feel like you lack the Spirit in your life? Let me read to you what Jesus says. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me 
and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Let's pray.